It is very likely your kid or grandkid's favorite YouTuber has a very compelling deconversion story. Before we do that, I have a lot of listener feedback. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Because my day job is in higher education, I often have the opportunity to talk with younger people. And I recall... The first time, a couple years ago, I asked someone in high school what they thought they wanted to do with their lives, and the response I got was, be a YouTuber. And then I found over time that this is the new celebrity for people, let's say, 20 and under, that those are the celebrities. It's not the movie stars and the athletes. The, the folks they know are the folks with big followings on YouTube, and two of the most popular, especially with the younger set, two gentlemen named Rhett and Link recently did almost a full four hours of content on how they grew up in the church, fell away from it, and I want to get to that today, at least for one of them, and we'll probably uh, finish, finish the show with it. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Another theme of this show is I never like to be wrong for more than one second than I have to be. So I will open the show with some corrections in just a moment. First, thanks for listening to The Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk 91.9, 92.9, or wherever you find the podcast. Thank you for listening there and for sharing the show. I would typically say here that I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and I am, and I would say that we meet at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. But that I don't know in this COVID-19 coronavirus world I can't say that with any kind of a surety. So from week to week, if you want to check Beachwood.cc or find Beachwood Church on Facebook, you can see what the plan is there. We we had service on Sunday. I guess that was the 15th. Uh, But from hour to hour, this thing moves so fluidly, you, you never know. All right, I said I wanted to start with corrections, and then we'll do some listener feedback and questions. I had a conversation with a very smart student at North Greenville University my, in my day job. His name is Andy. And because I am a hard stickler about pronouncing words correctly, to the extent that one point in my life, and you're all going to hate me for this, you're all going to groan, roll your eyes, you're, go- you're going to want to stab me with something. But there was a short period in my life that I collected a couple of the G's in a Scrabble game, like the letter G, and if it came up that someone was particularly bad at dropping their G's, so it's usually on an I-N-G word, they would say something like drop in their G's, I would take the G out of my pocket and say, hey, I found the G you dropped. I didn't do that many times. And I didn't do it with people I didn't know really, cl- really well. Like it was supposed to be funny on purpose. It was actually one of the things I disliked about Sarah Palin at the very, very beginning. And I had a lot of affinity for Sarah Palin at the beginning of her uh, political career. But she would she refused to say the final G in any I-N-G word. Everything ended with an I-N, and she dropped the G and got on my nerves. So I'm a stickler for pronouncing all of the words correctly. Like even recently, got to a discussion about the word picture, P-I-C-T-U-R-E, the thing that's an image. But there's a group of folks in the South in the South that say pitcher. Like the thing you pour water from. It's not a pitcher. There's no way to pronounce those letters in that way. P-I-C-T-U-R-E says picture. And there's a subset that say picture. 
like there's an S in there, like an SH. I'm a, I am hardcore stickler for saying all the letters that are in the word. And Hooked on Phonics worked for me, for those of you who are old enough to get that reference. And so this young man asked me how I said the word that, rep- that is represented on the periodic table with the symbol, I think, AL. And I said, aluminum. That's, that's the word, aluminum. He said, all right, well, why don't you look it up how it's spelt? And so I did. And guys, I've had it wrong for 34 years, almost 34 years. The way the Brits spell it, the original word, is the way they say it, aluminum. There's an extra I in there that I never realized. Now, on American periodic tables, it takes out that extra I, and so we just, there's no good reason for us to do that. But technically, the word I learned this week, and I love to share with you things I learned, even the inconsequential things, the word is not aluminum, it's aluminum. Next. I said last week in a discussion about uh, IFB, Independent Fundamental Baptist Churches, I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the word saved is the scriptural term for conversion. That the When we talk about converting from death to life, we talk about redemption, that those are the terms we use. Jesus would say, repent of your sin and follow after me. The, that's the term most common use. And I'm right about that. It's the most common use. But Charlie wrote in, and he corrected me. And so I want to correct that too. From Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, Paul talking, I believe it's to a jailer there. He says, you and your whole house will be saved. And the, the, the language there is about conversion. And so I said I didn't think it was scriptural language. And I, get this, I was wrong. That's what I was. So it's one of the terms I would still argue that the more common term is not that, but it's there. And so it's totally biblical to use. Next, so that's a, those are two corrections, and now here's some more listener response. That's how I wanted to start the show. A Facebook message from Bradley says, uh, where, where did that go? Uh, I'd like for you to discuss if Christians should keep up with horoscopes. Sure, I'd be glad to. No, under no circumstances, mostly because they're meaningless. I actually love the, uh, the irony of, of the of the people who take horoscopes, so take the, uh, the signs in the heavens. I think technically, if I believed in such nonsense and fairy tales, I'm an Aries, I think is what my sign is, born March 31st, 1986. Um, they, they tend to be people who are not as religious. And so one of my favorite jokes I came up with is as if the, the person who's into horoscopes says, oh no, I'm not into religion, I'm an Aries as if they're using their their sign as a reason they're not religious. Nope, you're religious. You just follow a pagan sign. You just follow a different religion altogether. That's just it's just called, uh, not astronomy, it's um, uh, astrology. It's astrology. And it, it does have some ancient pagan roots, but for the Christian, why on earth would you take any piece of another religion and use it? Now, granted, I would argue it's become this almost purely secular thing where it, it's, it might as well be a fortune cookie. It's, it's utterly meaningless. It, it, has, it has no depth. Uh, there's nothing there to it. And so, 
I mean, maybe practicing astrology itself would just straight up be pagan, and so no Christian should do it. But for the Christian who's into horoscopes and then takes them with any kind of seriousness, the, the argument should really be, do, do you, though, want to take life advice from a glorified fortune cookie? Seriously? Honestly? And moreover, all we need for life and godliness, what the Bible says, is in Scripture. So we don't need your horoscope, so we don't need your glorified fortune cookie. So no, I'm, I'm super against astronomy. I do, uh, excuse me, astrology and the use of horoscopes. We should just have no interest in them, both because they have pagan roots and because they're utterly meaningless and give no benefit to our lives whatsoever. So another one of my favorite things with that group, the group that tends to be into the horoscope thing, would be all about the language of, I, I don't really believe in miracles or your religious superstition now. Let me get back to my healing crystals. No, you you believe in religious things. They just happen to be pagan religious things. All right, so thank you, Bradley, for that question. Next, I had one from Reggie that I liked a whole bunch, uh, and it was this. He says, first, I subscribe to your podcast. Hey, look, Reggie did that thing that I wish all you would all do. And uh, again, hey, we're coming up the end of the month. It's my birthday. Want a good birthday present? Subscribe to my podcast. He says, now, I would ask a favor. Uh, would would there be enough interest in doing doing some sh- show content on the theology of today's praise band songs? I've talked about this some on the show previously, just not a ton. He says, as a praise band member, so apparently Reggie plays, it bothers me the romantic tones of some, t- of, some of today's, quote, worship music. My daughter recently sang a song, and if I didn't know better, could have been written for a boyfriend-girlfriend situation. So call me a fuddy-duddy, but I have yet to see in Scripture where when someone encountered God uh, that they ask for a dance, uh, they fell on their face in worship. God is not your bud or your boyfriend. I am having a hard time with the Bethel Jesus culture and some Hillsong and Elevation. I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so here you go. Oh, well, he does finish here saying uh, he's, he's set in his old-fashioned hymn-loving tale straight. Oh, oh, I could set his old-fashioned hymn-loving tale straight. Um, so first, we're on the, on the same page. Give me the hymns, man. Uh, the purpose of the songs that we sing is to teach us theology. And often, I would say the songs we sing at Beechwood, I could save a lot of them that they are seminary in a song. That it's not, it's not a song about you. It's a song about God. The psalms are often not about you. The psalms are often about God. Now, there are psalms of lament. There are psalms in the Bible of how of the feelings that that David had, he would he would express those things. But those psalms often are then cries for a sovereign God to do His work. And again, those are not the majority by any stretch, not even close, of the psalms. And so, the history of the church is that the the song that you sing is glorifying God. It's not really about you. And that is often the perspective that modern worship music takes. So I have some thoughts on this I want to give you. But first, there's a group, uh, a guy named, I can't pronounce it, and I feel terrible that I can't pronounce it because he's very talented, he's local, he's funny. It's, I think, Shama, Shama Imrima, maybe? I don't know. Um, but he has a, a, a parody. This one I'm about to play for you is a joke. He has a parody song out called The Worship Song Song. And I just want to play for you a small bit of it because it does make fun of, in a playful way, the vapidness of modern worship music. Life's 
got me down, I'm at the end of my road. Here's an out of context Bible verse about hope. This is the chorus, we're lifting our voices loud and triumphant. We're singing the chorus, it's repetitive, it's repetitive, it's repetitive. All my problems are gone. <laughs> I just love the, it's so good. That thing is like five minutes long, and it it will remind you of a lot of modern worship music. And forget about the the contemporary Christian Christian music scene that can get a little vapid and shallow. Uh, one of my favorite jokes is one of the more popular songs in the last ten years is from I don't remember her name. But uh, the chorus is, I got a couple dents in my fender, a couple rips in my jeans. Uh, got to keep the pieces together. Perfection is my enemy. Um, but all alone, I'm so clumsy. And so that there's dents and fenders, there's rips in jeans, and there's clumsiness. The one thing there's not is total depravity. <laughs> there's not actual a sin problem. There's just fenders that are messed up and some ripped up jeans. And so the actual reality that we have the, the problem is the wrath of God bearing down us on us for our sin. And so you have the, before the throne of God above, I have the strong, a perfect plea. I have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now that is good news. Uh, the, what is the second verse of In Christ Alone? Which is not a, an old hymn. It's from the Gettys in the last few years, but it is theologically deep. Uh, that is, I'm doing all this off the top of my head, so forgive me. Uh, in Christ alone who put on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, uh, this gift of love and righteousness, uh, scorned, scorned by the ones he came to save, and then you get into scorned by the ones he came to save. Uh, then on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Not every torn up fender not every, not every torn up gene, not your clumsiness, every sin on him was laid. So you get theology in these songs. And if you give me all the hymns, great is thy faithfulness and how great thou art, you're going to get that truth. Now, there are modern songs that do that. There is no question. There are just few and far between. And so uh, you know, there's even a discussion in my sector of Christianity that asks the question, could, can you do songs at all from Bethel or Hillsong because those places have such, those churches have such damaging and bad and shallow, sometimes shallow, sometimes bad, theology. I am of the opinion that a song can be separated from its author. And so sure, there's some good theology you can take from some of those songs. Uh, but no, Reggie, I'm with you, man. We would benefit greatly from diving the depths of that hymn book, if anyone has those anymore just to learn theology, and, and also to have the unity in a church across age groups. The pro, one of the problems we have with modern worship is you, there's a hot song for about six months to a year, but then you move on to the next one, and we forget that song ever existed. And you, So you keep on moving through new songs. The great thing about the hymns and the ones that you keep around is every age group can now participate in, in it, there's unity across the ages, unity across the different ethnic groups and even income groups in a given church. It's unifying over time to go to those hymns. And again, 
What you're talking about is how shallow they are. The hymns fix that problem. That when we are doing songs in church, that we're actually serving the function of a psalm, hymn, and spiritual psalm, as the New Testament says, and we are glorifying God by knowing Him better, making our diminishing the place we have for ourselves and expounding the place, His proper place, as King of all things. When we come back, I think I have, yeah, I have another response to, I actually have several other things that you guys sent me. So uh, we're going to take care of that when you come back for the, for the rest of the Corey Act Show. I was riding, riding down the road with one of my nephews, the older of the two, and I wanted him to hear one, like, three or four minute portion of my show. Guys, I don't make him listen to my show. I I understand I have a pride and arrogance issue. It's not quite that intense that I would make someone listen to the show as I sit right there. I was just trying to illustrate one thing for him. And coming in from a break, there was that piano playing because I play piano music coming in from breaks. And I said, hey, can you believe that's me? And he was like, is it? No, no, it's not me. I've been playing for almost a year. I still can't even play that Karen, I think that was a Karen Carpenter song. I'm, I'm almost positive. Thanks for listening to the Corey Truax Show. Glad you came back. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I hope you will. You can also write the show at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Glad to have you back on his radio talk at 91.9. And we will go right back to your feedback to me before I do the rest of the show on this deconversion, the dechristianing of these two guys I want to talk about on YouTube. I got more than one response to my content last week about independent fundamental Baptist churches. It's probably about a dozen. Now, very important point. Those of you who listen to the podcast, which I think I think is a larger group than listens on Saturday morning, you you guys heard two different shows. So I did a podcast version and I did a, a radio version. I mean, they were actually very different. And so for your, if you're listening live, by the way, uh, Saturday morning, 91.9. Can I encourage you to go find the podcast? Because that's only happened once thus far, where I did two different shows. But it's worth exploring both versions. And so I ended up... Guys, I'll, uh, I guess I'll be honest. I don't like going off my notes, but I'll do it. Bottom line is, that the, the show that aired on his radio talk, 91.9, last Saturday... I didn't listen back to all of it, but the bottom line is I didn't like my tone. I did not like my tone uh, with the first 10 minutes or so. And so I re-recorded it and handled it differently on the podcast. I also added some other content. Um, even like the podcast version started with the that, that pastor that handled that crying baby so poorly. So uh, it's worth going back and listening. But I got a lot of feedback, and here's what I found. I have way more Bob Jones-related listeners than I could have ever guessed. I just had no idea that you guys were out there. You don't ever write to the show until now. And here's the mistake I made. The independent fundamental Baptist movement is, a, is just more broad than I illustrated. I, I guess that's part of being independent Baptists is you guys don't have a, like a really settled 
and universal method. And so I described, I think mostly accurately, but, uh, the independent fundamental Baptist, but a, a subset. And then there's, because I, I, I thought about this, the people that I know, like I'll talk about a church I love. Uh, there's a, a, a church in Greenville called Heritage. I think it's called Heritage Bible Church. I love those folks. I mean, they are solid as a rock. I just, we have some theological differences, but they do such good work. And they're independent fundamental Baptists. And none of the stuff I said about screaming and hollering preachers, the spit and the slobber, they don't, they're, they're not that. The, they're not even KJV only. There's actually a, a fight amongst this other group of independent fundamental Baptists, uh, this other group I'm talking about. They, some of them, get, get this, some of them are okay with the consumption of like wine, maybe even for communion, I've heard of it. And the uh, the folks I was talking about last week, they call them <laughs> they call them wine bibbers, which is a term I forgot from the KJV, and I grew up on the KJV. And so about a dozen of you wrote into me with some version of you are not describing independent fundamental Baptist. You are describing an, a group of us, but it's not all of us. And so I should clarify that. What I said last week, that is a group. It's not the whole group, and I shouldn't have painted with such broad strokes that entire group. I even had one, a couple of you wrote in to say something like, it's actually Southern Baptist churches, the convention I'm a part of, that is KJV only as I was talking about. And that's true. There are some Southern Baptist churches that are as KJV only as I wanted. Actually, I think I mentioned earlier on the show, uh, Charlie is the one who wrote into me about how I, I was wrong that the word saved does appear in the Bible for one of the synonyms for uh, for conversion and redemption. And he mentioned some of that too. Uh, so my, let me just say it. My bad. Didn't mean to. I didn't, I didn't properly recognize that there's separate strains of independent fundamental baptism. And bottom line, that's just my fault. So, all right, moving to what's uh, this one came from. That is Raina. That's, is that a guy or a girl name? R-A-Y-N-A. Thanks, Raina. That's a girl. It's got to be a girl. Thanks, Raina, for sending in this. And I can't tell if it's a friendly email or not. It just says, what do you think about this? And then it sends me a link to a New York Times editorial that's that's by F- uh, Farhad Manju. And it says this. Republicans want Medicare for all, but just for this one disease. Subtitle, everyone's a socialist in a pandemic. Okay, you've got my attention, Raina. I'm interested, uh, but I would quickly say I'm not a Republican, but if we switch that out for free market capitalists or conservatives, okay. So you're telling me I've got some kind of hypocrisy maybe. All right, let's do this. Here's what Farhad Manju of the New York Times says. All it took was a pandemic of potentially unprecedented scale and severity, and suddenly it's like we're turning into Denmark over here. Not even close. You know, the, the, the only reason that we're, we are getting some of the medical advancement we're getting and going to get some of the, what are those, not the, the treatment kits, we're slow, but they're now coming, and then I'm thinking of vaccines, is going, we're going to do that. It's going to be America that does that. It's going to be the American private sector that fixes this for the entire for, for the entire world. It's going to be that. 
No, we're not turning into Denmark. From your first literal sentence, I can see where you're going. Well, the government's taking over the healthcare system for this one, uh, for this one disease. No, they haven't. They haven't taken over the healthcare system. Farhad, let's continue. He writes. In the last few days, a parade of American companies that had long resisted providing humane and necessary benefits. You're not going to do this, bro, are you? Oh, to their workers, abruptly changed their minds, announcing plans to pay and protect. You're si- so I didn't uh, read this because I like to do it. I like reacting to things live. He's going to argue that private companies making decisions about their employees is socialism. This might be, and listen, the New York Times publishes a ton of dumb stuff. This is all kinds of dumb. The next paragraph begins with this. Uber and Lyft, which are currently fighting state efforts to force them to pay benefits to drivers, announced that a form of paid sick leave wasn't such a bad deal after all. Honey, Farhad, by the way, this is a guy, so I can be, uh, I, I can talk to him like this. Darling, baby, when a private company decides to do something for its employees, that's not socialism. That's a private company. Try harder, okay? Trader, in the next next paragraph, Trader Joe's also says it will cover time off for the virus. Again, darling, Trader Joe's is a private company. If they decide that they want to cover time off for people who have the virus or, ha- or have concerns they have the virus, coronavirus, that's not Medicare for all, and that's not socialized medicine. Okay, bud? Uh, what? Continuing on, he says, Darden Restaurants, which runs several restaurants, including Olive Garden, said that its 170,000 hourly workers will now get paid sick leave. I can't believe you've not noticed it yet, man. You keep talking about private companies doing things and then calling it socialism. I... Uh, I don't even know that this deserves much more of my... Other, oh, okay, I see a, a, a government word. All right, I skipped like five paragraphs. Basically, I just saw the word Trump administration, and I know it's about to get into government policy. So, uh, okay, so they're talking about the fact that the Trump administration is talking about doing universal sick pay because if people are sick, they should stay at home. They're talking about... Standing with hardworking families. Okay, that's good. Uh, and Americans who contract COVID-19 that the Republicans in Congress were, uh, were working on a, uh, a plan to reimburse hospitals that care for COVID-19 treatments. So if the argument here, and Raina, I don't know what you were, why you sent it. I don't know if you're trying to make an argument for socialized medicine, but... That's what this guy's doing, and boy, it's dumb. Wow, it's stupid. The first half of the thing was about private companies doing private things, and then second, these policies the government's actually putting in place are in particular for a really weird situation. We're actually saying the things we're doing are weird. They're out of the ordinary. We're going to respond to an out-of-the-ordinary situation with out-of-the-ordinary policies. And properly so, by the way. Those are the right things to do. Those are good ideas to do in this out-of-the-ordinary situation. And then, like, I don't understand folks on the left with this. It, it is as if, well, 
the government's going to do extraordinary things for coronavirus, and therefore the government should pay for all of your fillings in your teeth. Wait, what? Well, government's going to reimburse hospitals for COVID-19. That probably means your optometry appointment should be free for all time and paid for by the taxpayer. How are you connecting these things? How are you connecting catastrophic situations to the government taking care of your strep throat test? Goodness. The immaturity and inanity of that kind of thinking blows my mind. But thank you for sending that over. One last view, uh, I say viewer. I don't have a TV show. I have a radio show and podcast. I got sent this by... Uh, I don't know if he wants to be identified publicly. I'm just going to say Sam. I sent to it by Sam. Because he knows, I think he knew it would set me off. But also he had a very good theory. Um, here's the bottom line. At pewforum.org, pewforum.org, you will find a very long and deeply interesting set of data, a data set. The title is White Evangelicals See Trump as Fighting for Their Beliefs though many have mixed feelings about his personal conduct. And so you'll see that um, white evangelicals just see Trump as their great bulwark. He is defending them and their interests. And I think I've mentioned before, I don't think that's irrational. The president has uh, a certain level of loyalty for those who help him. And so he sees evangelicals as a group who helped him. And so when they want stuff back, he gives it to them. So he saw them as a group who helped him get elected, and if they want Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, they're going to get Neil Gorsuch. And so he, he rewards his friends, punishes his enemies. None of that is about actual individual belief, but here is the one that Sam highlighted for me that oh, gets me. 15%, so that's a very small group. We should be somewhat encouraged by that it is small. 15% of white evangelicals say... Morally upstanding, the term morally upstanding, describes Trump very well. If you are in that 15%, you are living in a fantasy land. Now, here is the more disturbing thing. 15% said morally upstanding describes him very well. 45% said that term describes him fairly well. Meaning when you add together very well and fairly well, 61% of white evangelicals say the president's a morally upstanding person. And here's what that illustrates, and I didn't think of this myself. This is actually from Sam. It shows the, uh, the ability of the human brain to, to think irrational things so that they don't have to hold two conflicting thoughts at the same time. I believe in the psychology world they call this cognitive dissonance. We we have trouble holding two thoughts in our head that we find to be contradictory and so we'll, we, we'll just hold contradictory beliefs. Um, uh, excuse me, we'll, we will hold to a belief that's obviously false because we, we want to feel consistent. And so it, it shows that there's a problem in the human brain that we can't separate the action from the actor. So I can say, with a lot of clarity, the actions of the Trump administration are largely good. There's, uh, largely, that's a, that's maybe, are often good. That there's some good things that come out of that group. 
by the grace of God, and mostly I'm talking about economic policy here, mostly economic policy, some of the foreign policy, there's certainly some, some bad policy too. But I can separate the action from the actor. I can say the action is good, and the actor is a horrible person who needs to repent. And that's what we all need to be able to do a little better. Just be able to separate actions from actors, and we will have uh, we'll have a better country if we'll do that. But it is discouraging that 61% of white evangelicals would say, yeah, he's morally, he's morally upstanding. That's absurd, and we should all know better. When we come back, I've not given myself enough time to do this in full, but two guys who are likely some of the favorite YouTubers that your kids or grandkids watch, they're called Rhett and Link. I wouldn't be surprised if right now your kid or grandkid is watching Rhett and Link. They're very popular. They have a compelling story to tell. Uh, the growing up in church, growing up as Christians, and how they dropped their faith and walked away from it. I want to get to as much of that as I can when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. The tragic mistake of this show is what is likely to be the best content I have given only about 17 minutes to. We've got to get going on it right now. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Connect to me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those. Please go share the show. Let's get started. There is a marginally popular YouTube channel called Rhett and Link. Uh, they also have a very popular podcast. And by saying marginally popular, their podcast is... I don't know, a thousand times, 10,000 times bigger than mine. It's called Ear Biscuits. Rhett and Link are from central-ish North Carolina. I believe they both went to North Carolina State University. They're about 10 years older than I am. They're probably in their early 40s. And they are primarily popular because, guys, they're so good. They're hilarious. They're, they are a comedy duo. That They moved out to L.A. They've become big YouTubers. They've got their own media I wouldn't call it an empire, but a big media imprint. And I spent four hours listening to the two of them do an episode of their podcast about how they stopped being Christians, is how they would say it. Because they grew up really in the in the faith that I'm in now, and the, tr- the Christian tradition that I currently follow was how they grew up. One of them actually worked for Crew, which is Campus Crusade, You'll you'll get all the if you listen to the four hours they've read the case for Christ by Strobel and they've read all the all the apologetics books uh, and they break down how they got away from their faith and I tell this because tell this to you that despite the fact that they're in their early forties these guys are very popular with my nephews my my two fifteen and sixteen year old nephews in their age group because most of their content is frivolous fun. Just it's it's just a lot of a lot of laughs, and one thing you'll notice in watching these guys for four hours, if you do it, is they are so likable. They're they're just impossible to resent. They're just too genuine, earnest, seemingly decent people, and so they have this very compelling story of walking away from the faith that I think we need to interact with. And if I don't start playing clips right now, we're not going to get to any of them. So let me get started here with Rhett. We will not cover the other guy whose name is Link. We might do that on a future episode. Rhett opens his concern with a response he thinks he'll get. He thinks he's about to talk about how he's not a Christian anymore, 
and he's concerned that he's going to get this response. Uh, and and I want to say that because I've noticed that when I tell my story, uh, often people kind of conclude that I was never a true Christian, right? And I and and I'm, I'm addressing this up front for a couple of reasons. He, by the way, says this. I think I counted three more times throughout the accounting of his story. He doesn't want that said of him that it. He really believes he was truly, deeply, somehow an actual Christian following after Christ and now isn't. And his final conclusion, by the way, at the very end is that he calls himself a hopeful agnostic, that he's hopeful. He he wants there to be something supernatural. He doesn't think there is. He's just hopeful. But at the same time, he wants it to also be true that he was a Christian. He was following Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to do this like a prosecuting attorney because, again, he's so earnest and nice. I'm just saying that that's a logical inconsistency on its face. I was a Christian. Also, there is no real Christ. So, there's that. Well, no, you weren't, obviously. You, you don't even think it's true now. So, retroactively, it wasn't true then. I'm about to be a jerk. I'm going to stop. Uh, so, he starts to go down this trek about how he deconstructed his, uh, deconstructed his faith. I'm going to give you a little piece of that. So... This is someone who believes that the book of Genesis is literal history uh, and that the implication from that is that the world is between six and 10,000 years old. That's when this whole thing began. Uh, along with that comes the idea that Noah's flood, like Noah and the ark, that's a true story. Uh, and the entire world was flooded like you know a few thousand years ago. All the animals were on a boat. So he starts with Genesis essentially and has a problem with the credibility of a worldwide flood, there being a literal Adam and Eve, and then eventually having that responded to as he gets into evolution, that that's what he wants to start to study because he came from a world that told him evolution did not have any credibility. It should not be believed. And so then he starts getting into some of the, I think he went to NC State. It was that or UNC. And he starts to hear all the, the the problems that can that can be presented against that that view of Genesis. Now, really quickly, I want to make one I want to make one quick point. Inquisitiveness and curiosity are good. That's part of the Genesis mandate that we have as Christians, uh, go and subdue the earth. Well, that's not just physical. It's go learn. Go learn the earth. Go learn the facts. We that's a biblical call to be curious about, about the world. I, I would, uh, I'll save that conclusion. I am going to save that conclusion. Let me continue to let him tell his own story. Uh, he starts talking here a little bit about what happened when he started studying evolution in earnest. Now, again, this is a guy who grew up in church, made a, quote, decision for Christ at six years old, who worked for Campus Crusade for Christ. He starts looking at evolution I guess it's probably his early to mid-20s. Here's him talking about that. I thought evolution just didn't make sense on its face. It seemed completely illogical. In fact, it seemed desperate. If you did start to think about it. It seemed like it's so within. it's so non-intuitive, it was so non-intuitive to me at the time that it just felt like a desperate attempt for someone who didn't believe in God to try to explain the wonderful creation that we had. You gotta have something. Well, if God didn't do it, you gotta come up with some rant, you gotta come up with something. Mm -hmm. And evolution was the best thing that they had to offer. 
And that was it for me. And of course I had read all the books about uh, you know evolution not being true. I was, I was into that. In fact, I would sit down and I would argue with people and convince people who believed in evolution that evolution didn't happen. I loved doing that. <laughs> I stopped there for one important reason. I have a, a big conclusion at the end of all this, but I need you to get the fullness of what we're talking about. We're talking about a guy who, somewhere around the college years, is a lot like I was in my college years. Could argue really well with a secularist. Knows all the arguments. Has all of the information instilled in him. Almost to say, he had the parents that got him to church, got him the right resources, and he's he's now doing some. So he's he's now doing his own some work on his own. But he has all the fundamentals of knowledge that you would want a kid to have. Now, so he's 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 running into people on the Genesis thing. He's having some troubles with thinking Genesis is literal. The flood, Adam and Eve. He starts getting. Uh, he starts looking into evolution. So the next part of the story is he re- reads a book that I've read called, oh man, what's that called? The Language of God? Yeah, Language of God. It's by Francis Collins. I'm, I'm remembering back to the inter- his, his story now. And Francis Collins is a Christian, was a big part of the Human Genome Project. And Francis Collins wrote a book, The Language of God, arguing for DNA being some kind of evidence for God but along the way, Francis Collins explains that he's an evolutionist. He is following Christ, a believer, scientist, genetic expert, arguing for the existence of God by using genetic material and saying evolution is a real thing. And so I'm going to let you listen to Rhett wrestle through that part of his story, which was about 15 years ago. Now, this reason this rocked my world so much is because I was familiar with the argument that you know almost ninety nine percent of our DNA is the same as chimpanzees. I, I everybody knows that because the human genome has been mapped. But the you know the creationist answer to that is well yeah I mean God is making he's using the same building materials to make similar things. It's his prerogative how he does it. So of course you're going to look at these this instruction manual and you're going to see that yeah it's kind of the same and then it's sort of different in some key ways like God that's God's prerogative why can't he do that really quick that's not the best argument uh, against that so who whoever gave him information at the time didn't give him the best information the best argument there is the the meaninglessness of that ratio it is totally true that humans and chimpanzees have something close to ninety nine percent of the same genetic code. It's also true that humans and daffodils have about a 25% the same genetic code. Are humans 25% like daffodils? Nope, sure aren't. Are humans 99% like chimpanzees or whatever the whatever the, the primate is? No, that's not the case. When we're dealing with numbers that big and a genetic code, it's just utterly meaningless, the ratio between the two. But that doesn't seem like an adequate explanation to why it definitely feels like and looks like and seems to be very conclusive that we actually have the same chromosomes and they've been fused. That doesn't seem like consistent with the idea that this is just God's prerogative. So really quick, I want to highlight some language because I'm coming back to this. It doesn't seem, and then we use the word feels, it doesn't seem compelling, it doesn't feel compelling as an argument as he's working through this. Now I want to play more of you him working through it, but continue to listen for that language around him 
reconciling evolution and his, still at the time, he would say Christian faith. That the main thing that this did for me is I had been told a lot of things about evolution. I had been told things growing up. And now I was questioning those things because I had been told that there's no, there's no real evidence. This is a desperate attempt to try to come up with some harebrained theory to just explain things. And I'm like, but this DNA stuff is pretty freaking conclusive. I, I can't imagine another way to, now I'm not saying there aren't explanations for this. I'm not saying you can't go to a creationist website and find that they, it's not like they don't know about this. They have an answer. I've read the answer. I find the answer to not be compelling. I find that to be a really interesting phrase. So he knows that there is logical, rational uh, explanations, but the same way just a moment ago he said, I, I felt, I, uh, it seemed that this was compelling. I, this felt, this seemed not to be. It does say something about an, in, there's, there's some logic there. It does say something about an internal bias about what you just seem, it seems compelling. This doesn't seem compelling. Almost as if there was an outcome settled before the exploration began. Now, I need to recreate the the situation. So, God grows up in church. He's well-trained. He's working for a Christian ministry. And he starts to question Genesis. He's not satisfied with the story of Genesis, the flood, Adam and Eve, what he's heard about evolution. Uh, I skipped some parts about archaeology, by the way, that he had some problems with archaeology. And then how archaeology does or does not support the Bible. So, all of these really big apologetics issues. And then he and his partner move from North Carolina, the Bible Belt, and their Christian world, they move out to California. We moved to California. We immediately got involved in a church, an evangelical church, met some great people, made some great friends. Uh, And this is when I adopted what I'm going to call California Christianity. And I've got to speed this up if we're going to get this finished. California Christianity is essentially focus on Jesus. That's the part that matters. So all these other things that you're worried about, biblical inerrancy, Genesis, Adam, Eve, evolution, archaeology, you don't have to worry about those things. Just get the Jesus part straight. He continues on that point here. The place that I had sort of put a barrier around and said, we're not going there. Sure, we can talk about evolution. We can talk about the historicity of the Old Testament. But where I'm not gonna go is I'm not gonna go to Jesus. I'm not gonna question Jesus, but I just couldn't help myself. And I can't, uh, I can't believe I'm having to do this. I encourage going to watch this, maybe even watch it with your kids, but I, I, have, to, I have to start summing this up. I'm running out of time. He goes to Bart Ehrman next. So he goes to Bart Ehrman. He is the famous University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill biblical spec skeptic. He's called a textual, critic, textual criticism. Um, and at, up until this point in Rhett's bio, I actually have a lot of... I can understand. I understand struggling with the flood and evolution, arche, some of the stuff in archaeology. I actually can hear all that. Bart Ehrman is an intellectual hack, and his arguments are terrible. His arguments are, are, are really bad objectively on their face in regards to how we get, how we get to Scripture. But... That's not my point. My point was this at the beginning. This is a voice that your teenagers are listening to. This is a voice that your kids and grandkids in their 20s find compelling and interesting. 
and you shouldn't ignore it. We can't ignore it. Here is the big conclusion I came to for him in particular. He has a story that a lot of us have. Came up in a culture that to be respected and and to be included, you needed to hold to these things and believe these things. But he was obviously from a very early age not wanting to believe those things. Having uh, that, that curiosity was very healthy, but there was a natural bias even when there was equally compelling arguments to go against believing the thing of the faith because even though he says he doesn't want anyone to say it, say it of him, it's because he never genuinely believed. He had this tragic story that happens all the time in the Bible Belt where you do the thing mom and dad said to do without it ever being genuine. And so he was part of a culture that needed him to stay, for him to be a part of that culture, he needs to stay part of the believer. And it is significant that he went out to California. It is significant that he got to a place that told him, well, to be accepted here, you're going to need to believe some different things. This happens to our kids when they go off to secular universities. They get involved in a place that says, well, to be accepted here, to be thought of as smart here, you're going to need to change some things. And so when your culture changes, what you're willing to change about yourself changes. And all that really shows is that the goal ultimately is acceptance and inclusion, and your environment can have a lot to do with that. And the bottom line core is this, is what I was trying to get to. We... I, I want to free some parents. You can do all the right things. You can, you can train them with a lot of information. And this can still happen. And then I want to give this encouragement. The, these are not bad things to wrestle through. But let's wrestle through it with, with our kids. Let's embrace those things. Let's take them head on in those skepticisms, knowing that the work is the Lord's, it's the Holy Spirit's, and it's, it's not ours. I might get back into this because we ran out of time. It's a really compelling inter- uh, uh, interview and, and talk if you want to go listen to it. It's, it's Rhett and Link. If you have thoughts on that, you can return them to me at CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. But ultimately, we just have that same Bible Belt story of someone falling away from a faith that was not genuine. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, peace and love.